Jesus is loved or hated? And you need to hear the intensity of those words. Jesus is loved. I'm thinking agape. When Jesus says to Peter in John 21:15, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you prefer me? Do your affections for me have weight, power, and direction over your life? Jesus is either loved like this or hated. I'm thinking the world hates me because I testify its works are evil. John 7, 7. Maceo, renounce in favor for something else, to esteem less. Not indifferent, not neutral, but esteem less. It's intense. Jesus is loved or hated. And before we categorize this into two comfortable groups, Jesus is loved by the Christians and hated by the non-Christians. Or Jesus is loved by the Christians and or those who believe moral decency and traditional values on social issues. And Jesus is hated by those who are not Christians and or are immoral or amoral or have an anything goes outlook on life so long as it doesn't hurt anybody or, hey, if it hurts somebody else, oh well. See, Jesus was hated by the most extreme so-called religious people on the planet. They were in the right religion, too. Jesus was hated by them. And so I've asked myself this week, do I love Jesus? Do I really love Jesus? Do my affections for him have the right weight over the direction of my life? And you might say, Kevin, you're a pastor, you read the scriptures daily, you teach us, don't be so hard on yourself. (laughs) But I don't consider self-examination as a means to beat myself up, more of as a, a means to allow Jesus to do his purifying work. Because if I'm honest, sometimes I labor to write my sermons when I more freely do less godly habits. Sometimes I don't pray because I go to sleep dead tired, but sometimes I peruse my phone right before falling asleep when I could be praying. (laughs) Do I love Jesus? Do you love or hate Jesus? And do you really love him? Or if you're honest, if you thought about it, there's a part of you that might say, I might hate him. You can turn to 1 Samuel 18 and find that in there, King David, who was anointed, just not appointed yet, is loved and hated. Framing chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, we see King Saul's family, namely first his son Jonathan, and then at the end of the chapter his daughter love David, but Saul grows to loathe him. In the middle of the chapter, in verse 16, we find that all of Israel and Judah love David. But it seems the overriding authority, 
the biggest culture maker in Israel, the king himself, hates him. Loved and hated. We're just going to be covering the first nine verses today, but I invite you to stand with me one last time if you're able to, and let's read 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 through 9. We read, When David had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan was bound to David in close friendship and loved him as much as he loved himself. Saul kept David with him from that day on and did not let him return to his father's house. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. Then Jonathan removed the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. David marched out with the army and was successful in everything Saul sent him to do. Saul put him in command of the fighting men, which pleased all the people and Saul's servants as well. As the troops were coming back when David was returning from killing the Philistine, the women came out from all the cities of Israel to meet King David, singing and dancing. Oops. King, sorry, you're right. Now I lost my place. (laughs) No, you're right. Verse 6. As the troops were coming back, when David was returning from killing the Philistine, the women came out from all the cities of Israel to meet King Saul, singing and dancing with tambourines, with shouts of joy, and with three stringed instruments. As they danced, the women sang, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Saul was furious and resented this song. They credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but they only credited me with thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. Let's pray. Father, as we look into this familiar story to see David being loved or hated, And how this might reflect of our own affections towards the greater King David, King Jesus. We pray that you would do a work of grace in our hearts. Many of us claim and profess to love you. But if there is still parts of our lives that are sinful and at the core hate you, would you root those parts out? Father, help us to live our lives glorifying you. We sang before Sunday school, school in my life, Lord, be glorified. That is our prayer. Say what it is that you desire. Move me out of the way. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. When people clash over something and the polarization is love or hatred, that something that is clashed over is immovable. Many politicians have been noted to flip-flop on issues. Sure, sometimes the flipping and flopping might be real. I've had a change of heart about this topic. But I love it, sarcasm, I love it when they flip-flop right before an election or a re-election. What are they trying to do? Curry favor. 
garner votes, get some of the on the fencers to become lovers. And it's not real love by that point. For me, it's just what it usually is, a vote for the lesser of two evils. But other people, like Jesus, to provoke such strong devotion and such fuming, seething hatred, it's because he is immovable. And what he stands for, he stands for it perfectly, resolutely, like a rock. And whatever that rock or that stance is, the values that endure forever from it, and the people who oppose him oppose him violently because they know that he'll never change his mind. He'll always stand for what he stands for. And the people who love him should love him devotedly because he will always be there. <laughs> always be the voice that he is and never change. You know, sometimes events shout and echo such truths forever. We think about the cross. The cross will always communicate the same things. The suffering that Christ endured, Christ prayed in the garden. He says, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And it communicates to us this. This had to be done. There was no other way which can be offensive, because why did Christ do it? Peter, a close friend of Jesus, the one to whom Jesus was saying, Peter, do you love me? Do you agape me? Peter says, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. That is the offense of the cross, that Christ had to do this, because A, the world is so sinful, it must suffer punishment. It has wages to pay for sin. But then also, what's stinging is what Jesus endures, the crucifixion. And so what is being said? This is what you and I deserve. Death to this degree. Excruciation. I don't deserve that. I'm not that much of a sinner. God disagrees, and it's perfectly just. It's offensive, too. John the Baptist, one to never shy away from offensive-sounding statements, says in John 3.36, he says, The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Great words, right? <laughs> At the cross, we see the love of God for those who believe in him. Those who believe in him. That sounds exclusive. <laughs> because there is a condition. One must believe in him. That sounds offensive. There is wrath involved from a perfect, loving, and good God of the universe. And at the cross, it happened. It's done, it's been observed, it's been recorded, and now it echoes consistently and forever. God is saying, this is who I am, this is how it is, this is what I stand for. And Jesus is loved or hated. David is anointed king, his brothers know it. His brothers, one in particular that we know, hates him for it, Eliab. 
But David is anointed. It's done. Then he slays Goliath. He stepped up where no other warrior in Saul's army had. And not only did he lay a giant to rest to really save the kingdom. Now I laid out several times that Goliath and the Philistines were 15 miles away from destroying Israel's most important cities. But now the threat is gone. Saul has asked who David's dad was, likely to ensure David and his family received a reward that Saul had promised to the giant slayer. And we read, When David had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan was bound to David in close friendship and loved him as much as he loved himself. Let's skip and look at verses 3 and 4 as it has to do with the same topic. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. Then Jonathan removed the, the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. The younger people might be struck by this more than the older people, but I'm sure we can all agree that we live in such a confused world when it comes to love, friendship, what's romantic and what's platonic. <laughs> I remember this at the school grounds in Kamii. There is about a two to three hundred yard walk between the lunch room and the doors of the middle school. And I remember whenever I was in junior high, once or twice walking back from lunch, I was talking to a friend of mine, a girl. We had just chatted. We had some similar interests. I don't even remember the, the content of our conversation. And some rumors spread, probably only even after chatting with her once, because it was just her and I on the, the sidewalk. However, there were people before us and people after us. It was obviously in public. But And we probably got to the middle school. We split ways. I probably went to go play hacky sack with my friends. I did that a lot in those days. And she probably went to go hang out with uh, her friends. And uh, But because we chatted for a few minutes, and, and knowing me, here was the reason. It was out of courtesy. Like, okay, she's right near me. Do I want to be a snob and walk away? Or do we want to make this, you know, walk friendly and let's chat for the next few minutes? But rumors spread. Kevin, are you and Shannon going out? <laughs> no, we shared a chat after lunch. <laughs> doesn't make us lovers. <laughs> and at most, I think most normal people I would think would only allow from that one occasion friendly acquaintances or maybe friendship if they see us on multiple occasions. But, uh, but are we going out? <laughs> now, I chalk it up then to teenagers, perhaps always looking for something juicy to gossip about in the hallways. And, and anything will do. But as I've, as I've gotten older... I've grown a little bit angered and frustrated by our current culture. Because I don't know how many times I've been in public and now, now I see two men or two women together. And when only, I don't know, only 10, 15 years ago, I would have suspected nothing. But now, are those two women holding hands? Is that more than just regular girl friendship? Is that guy, what is that guy wearing? Does it suggest something beyond platonic friendship? And now I am more probably guilty of thinking wrongfully about two innocent people in public more than one occasion. Maybe some other times I've been right about my suspicions. I say all this to say that in recent years and in older years, 
but I think more dug up in recent years, there are suspicions about King David and Saul's son, Jonathan. This suspicion is about the nature of their relationship. Was it more than platonic? Was it homoerotic? It rises in large part nowadays by liberal theologians, I think, who happen to be looking for anything in the Bible to say what they want it to say, (laughs) as well as a failure to grasp and appreciate ancient Hebrew or ancient Near Eastern culture and how expressive these people were. I mean, these are the people who who never um, lied or omitted the fact on how they felt if you asked them, right? If you came up to them and say, how's your day going? And when we, we, we days, we nowadays would say good and half the time we're lying about it. <laughs> no, these guys would have their shirt torn, ashes on their head. You would know if they're having a bad day. <laughs> and, and when it came to friendships, perhaps when they were not afraid to, perhaps they are not afraid to express it, even as men. This isn't the only the time of the author of the book of Samuel will touch on the intense affection that these two guys had with each other. In fact, we will read later at Jonathan's funeral, basically, David declare, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were such a friend to me. Your love for me was more wondrous than the love of women. So perhaps in search of something that I believe really isn't there, people will not emphasize the brother part. (laughs) In that passage, but they will emphasize the language about uh, David's love for Jonathan or Jonathan's love for David. So, yes, there is language there that could make people wonder. But but I'm arguing that our current culture has more weight on that interpretation than what that culture would suggest and what the words say. So I, I've brought this up before that as Goliath was threatening all Israel and nobody, not even Saul, was stepping up to the playing field, I asked the question, where was Jonathan? Uh, Chapter 18 here, how it opens, suggests that Jonathan was quick to receive David after David talked with Saul about his slaying Goliath. So this, to me, would strongly suggest that Jonathan was around for the whole ordeal, but he never rose to the task. Jonathan if you might remember, did rise to another harrowing task. Back at the beginning of 1 Samuel 14, Jonathan was running around slippery mountaintops, and then he engaged a garrison of 20 Philistines along with his armor-bearer, two against 20. And the language surrounding the engagement suggests that Jonathan trusted God to grant him victory. So people wonder, why didn't Jonathan engage the Philistine here? Did he have a lapse in faith or would Saul not let him? That might be more of a possibility, even though Saul was ready to kill Jonathan for a stupid oath that Saul made. Furthermore, Saul's treatment of his kids in this chapter tells us that Saul seems to be among the tyrannical crazed king rank that we know so well of not overlooking killing or mistreating his own family to preserve his own throne. One of my commentators suggests that Jonathan did not move to take on Goliath because perhaps Jonathan knew another king was in Israel. See, perhaps Jonathan was hoping that this occasion would draw out the next king. Crazy kings do at times share their fears with their sons. And perhaps there has been occasion where Saul had said to Jonathan, well, if Samuel and his God have their way, you'll never be king, Jonathan. 
Apparently the kingdom is ripped from me, but not if I have anything to do about it. Jonathan, more tender-hearted to the God of Israel, could have kept himself quiet. And then as he does here, embrace the next king. The language here, Jonathan was bound to David in close friendship. If you remember um, Jacob, Israel's uh, namesake, uh, it's the love that Jacob has for Benjamin after thinking Joseph is dead, if you remember that story. It's actually what Judah says to Joseph while Joseph is prime minister of Egypt. And he's changed so much that Judah or his brothers don't even know who he is. And Joseph is seeking to keep Benjamin in Egypt. And Judah replies, if I return home to my father and the boy is not with us, his life is wrapped up with the boy's life. And that's the same Hebrew language there uh, of what we're told of how Jonathan was bound to David. Judah continues, when he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. Now, hopefully all of us know our Bibles. We know the story of Jonathan and David, but I think the author likely wants us to see here from the get-go that Jonathan's reasons for coming in close with David is the exact opposite of any false pretenses that Saul might have to come close with David. See, Jonathan does love David. He wants David to succeed. He sees David as the rightful uh, next king, and he rejoices in that fact. Notice um, the language here. Verse 3, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. Golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have done to you. Jonathan loved David as much as he loved himself. And the word covenant is the exact same word where testament comes from as in Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. For Jonathan, the covenant with David. And then the following verse 4, Jonathan removed the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. The last part, especially when one renders uh, their sword to another, is a sign of submission. You are the greater warrior. But then also note the symbolism here in military tunic, armor, belt, bow. He's saying, conduct me where to go. Now we're not told if Jonathan made any vows verbally to the point of this, you are the king. But all the language suggests that Jonathan knows. Jonathan will verbalize that he knows David is the next king later on in chapter 23. But this right here says it all. He's saying, all these things are at your disposal. Conduct me where to go. Now, I don't know if you've heard me ever say this, but the Bible is about Jesus. <laughs> and I, uh, I want to back out here a ways and say this. Jesus is the son of David, the greater King David. Jonathan was part of the kingdom, the son of Saul, but he makes way for King David. King Saul is the established Israel monarchy. Jonathan, in this sense, I imagine another Jonathan, namely John the Baptist. The kingdom representing the established Jewish hierarchy at the time of Jesus. See, while the Jewish religion wants to hunt Jesus down and execute him, 
John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant prophets, says, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. And as John the Baptist uh, forfeits his fame, so Jonathan begins to forfeit his fame of his heroics at Michmash, where he slew the 20 Pharisees with his armor bearer. He knows his throne is no longer a reality, but he embraces his David all the more. Jonathan was next in line for the throne when it came to a potential dynasty for the family of Saul. But when David comes on the scene, he gives all that up. Now, even supposing that Jonathan thinks little of his dad, we remember a line that Jonathan once said, and he says, my father has brought trouble to the land. And that's when Saul made the vow that nobody eat until all the Philistines were defeated. But Jonathan ate because like most normal people, he was hungry and he was tired because they've been doing war stuff (laughs) and he was starving for food. But the language of that word trouble, if you remember, was weighty. It was the same language of Achan, who for Joshua, as they took over the promised land, trouble. He brought trouble to the entire community because he disobeyed God. And so they all stoned uh, Achan. So this just wasn't a shrug offish. My dad's an idiot. (laughs) Granted. That would be offensive enough. But Jonathan was branding his dad as trouble for Israel. So all that to say, it could have been easy for Jonathan to then say, I will be obedient. I will be the real king from the tribe of Benjamin and do what he should do. I'll be what God wants my dad to be and then look forward to the day of his own throne. But with the news of another anointed king, Jonathan clears the way. With the giant slayer revealed, Jonathan completely opposite of bemoaning his lost potential throne he embraces he submits he rejoices he renders his love and loyalty to the next king even while his dad still inhabits the throne which would be kind of shaky as well this love of king david is the love that we owe king jesus sacrifice what does jesus say if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Matthew translates the saying for us, so we might not hear it the wrong way. He says, the one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone who finds his life will lose it. And anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. You hear the devotion in that? King Jesus comes first. But what he's calling me to is going to rub them the wrong way. King Jesus comes first. But it's risky and and there are unanswered questions. And if Jesus is calling you, what he wants goes first. (laughs) But if I submit to that, I'll have to let go of my pride. I'll have to dial back on my personal convictions. Whatever the case is, if Jesus is calling you, what King Jesus wants goes first. The love that Jonathan has for David is costly. It's costly. It costs his relationship with his dad, the crazed king of Israel. 
It costs him his personal potential throne. But Jonathan loves David with gladness. You and I as Christians likely hear from time to time, look what God has done. He sent his only son to die for you. He loves you and that is all true. Such great truth it is. I've brought my sin to the table. He brought his righteousness. I brought my desire to live at the table. So he brought his death. I've brought my selfishness to the table. He brought his selflessness and we've exchanged. He died for me. But a life in Christ and a life with Christ, as we've just seen out of the mouth of Jesus, is costly. It's sacrificial. We now must be crucified with Christ. We no longer live, but he lives through us. We should sing a song about that sometime. The cost is too much for Saul to bear. He has never accepted it. He's never accepted God's verdict about his own throne. And so when the anointed king shows up, yes, first to save Israel, the very Israel that Saul should be defending, and indeed the very Israel that Saul will now get to continue ruling over, thanks to David's victory over Goliath, when that king shows up nonetheless, rather quickly Saul grows embittered and jealous. First, we see some foreboding language. If we recall some language earlier in the book, we, we, we have here in verse 2, Saul kept David with him from that day on and did not let him return to his father's house. Now, this word kept, other translations like the New King James or ESV would literally say took, which connects back to a warning that Samuel gave when Israel was first demanding a king. Samuel once said, these are the rights of the king who will reign over you. He will take, there's that same Hebrew word, your sons and put them to his use. And here we see after David slew Goliath, it seems for better or worse, whether David would want her or not, if his father could spare him or not, David was taken by the king. And we do see some coercion behind it. He did not let him return to his father's house. The weight of the chapter, and especially the rest of the book, that whether Saul had even good intentions at the get-go, he probably wouldn't let David go home because he probably suspects or fears him conspiring to take the kingdom. Let's continue in verses 5 through 9. We see that David marched out with the army and was successful in everything Saul sent him to do. Saul put him in command of the fighting men, which pleased all the people and Saul's servants as well there is this irony that builds throughout the whole chapter and that is this the more Saul attempts to have David killed outside of just trying to kill him in cold blood with a spear <laughs> the more such attempts serve to raise David's reputation because of that irony some have pointed this out here that this phrase here Saul put him in command of the fighting men is that really a promotion or an honor um, in 1 Samuel 16, we read that David was Saul's personal armor bearer, the servant to the king. That seems to be a higher place of honor. You're always in the king's company. I mean, it is also a good thing that you're a commander of the army, but some question Saul's intentions. Is he just trying to get him killed, to put him out in the battlefield? Um, but 
Saul's intentions making of making his commander aside, it pleases both all the people. The general population say, yes, the giant slayer deserves such a post. And it Saul's servants, it pleases them. Thanks for honoring David. You are a wise king, you know. But then verse 6 has people scratching their heads. As the troops were coming back when David was returning from killing the Philistine. Now, this is the confusing part. Is the author now suddenly referring back to David's confrontation with Goliath? Or is this a different war? And the word Philistine is singular, and it's the same word used in chapter 17 to refer singularly to Goliath every time. But some want to look at the content of verses 1 through 5, and it looked like it was paving out a future after David and Goliath. So this might be another occasion after David received his post to commander of the armies. I don't know. I can just easily see the author filling in some future background, but then returning back to this scene for another notable point in the narrative here. So I'm supposing it's after David slew Goliath and the Israelites capitalized on that. They ran the Philistines back to their homeland. They returned to something not uncommon in the culture of their day. The women came out from all the cities of Israel to meet King Saul, singing and dancing with tambourines with shouts of joy and three stringed instruments. This is the uh, receiving parade that happens after all the wars, right? We recall such parades and pictures, especially after World War II. But the women would sing, dance, and come up with music, and one line of such songs are preserved for us. As they danced, the women sang, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Now, the commentaries I read were a little hard on Saul. (laughs) As they tried to explain this line, they say, This is a common device of Hebrew poetry, a parallelism. Such parallels are elsewhere in the scripture. There are references for those in your outlines. They are just two similar phrases. The second phrase having a greater degree to emphasize something. Now, what's not usual is naming different people. Nevertheless, they did. And I think my commentators painting Saul like the bad guy he really is. I think they overstepped it here and they were saying he interpreted it in the worst possible light. He overlooked the usual usage of parallelisms. And I was left wondering, how else should Saul interpret it? (laughs) I mean, I know I'm not an ancient Israelite, but it seems pretty clear to me whether it's a normal literary form or not. It's a praise of David at the expense of Saul. Makes sense to me why Saul might be a little dismayed by it. Sure, he could have been a bigger man and let it slide off his shoulders, but when a popular song of the day is all about how someone does better than you, (laughs) and both you and the other person are named, it's no surprise to me that Saul takes offense. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Even a better man than Saul may have taken offense. If somebody got famous for citing a poem, roses are red, violets are blue, Joe's in shape, too bad Kevin isn't too. (laughs) If that got famous, and I knew Joe, and I knew Kevin referred to me, I might laugh it off in good humor, but part of me would be a little upset. So what I will fault Saul for is what his offense leads him to do. We read in verses 8 and 9, Saul was furious and resented the song. He's overreacting. He's dwelling on it. They credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but they only credited me with thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? 
So Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. Though Saul is mad in more ways than one, he's not lost his memory. He knows, as he has known for quite some time, I'm assuming, that there is a neighbor that is better than he, so Samuel said to Saul in 1 Samuel 15:28, whom God has given the kingdom to. And he suspects, as apparently as his son Jonathan has, that this man David likely might be the one. And unlike his son Jonathan, Saul doesn't embrace David. He jealously eyes him, and it's going to drive him madder and madder. Jonathan rightfully ascertained the problem about his father with that word trouble. And all of the connotations of that word, all of the connotations having to do with Achan who sinned and disobeyed the Lord. And so Joshua, the leader of Israel in his day, asked him, why have you brought us trouble? Disobeying the Lord reveals something that no one wants to own up to. I know this from experience. When we talk about loving God or hating God, we're talking about two entirely different paths in life. Loving God, one that is committed to Him, devoted to Him, obeying Him. Indeed, obeying Jesus who says the two greatest commandments are this, love God and love people. These are good commands and they ought to make good people. If you think about it simply, if your entire life is wrapped up with loving God and loving people, that's a good equation. Well, then what is hating God? The Apostle Paul reveals these two paths rather bluntly. He says in Romans 8, Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. Do you see how vivid Paul makes these categories? We look at it as, well, sinning and doing what's right. Doing what I want to do and doing what God wants to do. And we read... Mindset of the flesh, mindset of the spirit, and we say, that's just biblish. (laughs) That's Christianese. (laughs) And Paul uses these weighty words because of the weighty concepts they portray. It's an entire mindset, a mindset of the flesh. What I want to do, giving into fear instead of faith, giving into comfort instead of risk, giving into sin instead of obedience, giving into self instead of God. An entire mindset of flesh. It's not, eh, sin, so what? It's not, it's just what I want to do. And if it's not what God wanted to do, then Paul says it's death. It leads to death. It's a bad thing. It's driving Saul of the Old Testament insane, quite literally. Because here's what the mindset of the flesh is. Paul continues to say the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's the stakes. It comes back to this. Do I love God? Do I really Love God. We all have a tendency that we correct uh, this little thing about the Bibles. We pat ourselves on the back and say, 
Well, I know all the legends of faith are humans just like me. Paul, Peter, the disciples, they had problems just like me. How heartwarming to know that God puts people like us in the Bible and how terrifying. (laughs) We're one step away from being Peter or Paul, but we're how many steps away from being King Saul? King David was loved and hated. Jesus is loved and hated. And before you say, I'm in this category, what does your actions say? What does your mindset say? There are some areas in my life, if I'm honest, that I just feel unable to submit to God's law. And if if it's a reflection of my mindset on the flesh or the spirit, then it's also a reflection of my love or hatred. Hostility, to use Paul's words. Hostile to God. Lord Jesus, help me to change my mindset. The mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. What makes the difference? King David was an anointed king who slew Goliath, a threat to Israel. King Jesus is the anointed king who slays our sins. And can change rotten hearts from the inside out. Can change us from the mindset of the flesh and transform us to the mindset of the spirit. Paul would continue in Romans 8. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. Christ is loved or hated. For those who hate him, they are dead. They're just like animals going off what's most pleasurable, what's most fulfilling from thing to thing, from passion to passion, from cause to cause. But with Christ and in Christ comes life. True soul, S-O-U-L, satisfaction, fulfillment. King Saul has one thing he's wrapped up in, himself as king. And what a great kingdom he presides over, isn't it? Hey, King Saul, what are you doing today? Chasing David. (laughs) Saving my throne. My throne's going to collapse any day. I'm going to kill him before he takes my throne. Every single day. (laughs) What a life. What a death. But for those who love Christ, there's life. Hello, believer. What did you do today? Built an ark, saved the world. Left a pagan homeland full of rotten sins, child sacrifice, weird spirituality to go discover a holy homeland full of worship of the God who loves people. Had a child even though I was past childbearing age because that child is part of the promised offspring bringing the Savior of the world. Hid my baby from an evil empire aborting firstborns because I trust God's going to use them someday to save an entire race from the clutches of this said evil empire. Need I say more? Life, when our king is loved, it brings us life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you are either loved or hated. 
Help me to love you and love you well. Help me to not desire myself over you because whether I know it or not, I'm desiring small potatoes in comparison to the Grand Canyon of the life you would have for me. Father, as we just laid out, we see what happens when people choose you over choosing themselves. And quite painfully, we see in King Saul what happens when people choose themselves over you. Don't let those words, don't let that that truth pass over our hearts and our minds without convicting us. And Father, it's hard because in the Bible we see the grand picture, the scheme of things. It's hard to relate that to the here and now, but the next time an opportunity or a temptation comes up, help us not to choose sin. Help us to choose you. Help us to realize that the pleasure or the comfort or whatever we think is going to give us in those moments, oh, if we can see what you have in store for us, it would far outweigh what we think we're going to get in those moments. Father, help us to trust you when the trusting is hard. And help us to love you and love you well. We ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.